0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode two of the Philosophy and Film Podcast produced in partnership with the Hyde Park Picture House in Leeds. My name's Joe Saunders, I'm a philosopher at Durham University, and for the past few years I've run a regular philosophy and film series at the Picture House. This year, with the cinema closed, we thought we'd give a podcast a go as a way of continuing some of the interesting discussions we've already begun, as well as to start some exciting new ones. So the way this works is that in each episode I'll be joined by a different guest philosopher who will each nominate a film for us to discuss. We'll then explore whether we can learn anything about the film from philosophy, but also whether the world of philosophy could learn anything from the film. A huge thanks to Natasha McKeever and everyone who listened to our first episode on Phantom Thread. Helen Nixon got in touch via Twitter to say she enjoyed listening and wanted to recommend The Double as a good film to discuss in a future episode. Thanks for the suggestion, Helen, and if there's any philosophers listening who'd like to come on and talk about the film, do let us know. And if anyone else wants to put forward a film suggestion or has any thoughts on topics discussed, we're using the hashtag #philosophyfilm. So moving on to this week's episode, we're lucky to be joined by Dr. Gerald Lang, who's selected for us David Lynch's Blue Velvet. Gerald is a philosopher at the University of Leeds. He's recently finished a book on moral luck and is starting another on questions of self-defense and the ethics of war. I caught up with Gerald earlier this year on Zoom, and before getting into Blue Velvet, I started by asking him the same thing I'm going to ask all our guest philosophers, and that's whether he's seen any good films lately.
1: I've uh, I've been watching things on TV recently, obviously, uh, cinemas are closed, and um, there was a series of eating films broadcast on the BBC, so I've seen a couple of them, um, including uh, The Man in the White Suit, which I hadn't seen before, from 1951 with Alec Guinness. Yeah, it's good.
0: Is it tempting you at all to buy a white suit? <laughs> You're probably one of the few people I know who could actually pull off a white suit.
1: I'm not sure about that, Joe. <laughs> uh,
0: was there anything philosophically interesting about it? It was actually,
1: yes, it was actually. It's quite sharp. It's a satire. So, the premise of the film is that Alec Guinness invents uh, an imperishable white suit. It never wears out, it never gets dirty. Um, so, the management is enthusiastic about that at first, um, but it, they lose enthusiasm after they realize that this will mean that once people had bought their white suits, they wouldn't need to buy anything more. So then they try to block it. And also the workers at the factory try to block it as well, because uh, they also realise that once that stock had shifted, um, they wouldn't be required to manufacture any new clothing. So it's quite a quite sharp, satirical thought about capitalism, that capitalism, both capital and labour, are invested in producing things which, you know, aren't as good as they could be. I mean, after that, it's just a farce, really. Um, it's just a kind of a funny chase movie. But, but, but the central thought is quite, quite, uh, quite astringent, quite, quite satirical and um, has something to say about capitalism.
0: Nice. So in a socialist utopia, we could all be wearing clean white suits.
1: Exactly. And do something else with our days other than making new suits, which weren't all that good.
0: So on to Blue Velvet, then. Why did you choose this film?
1: Well, I I first watched this film um, when it was on general release in the UK. That must have been uh, 1987. And I I went to see it without much fanfare. I I suppose I'd seen Barry Norman's um, film programme and he had said something about it which made me want to see it. But I didn't know much about David Lynch. I'd never seen... um, I'd never knowingly seen any other David Lynch films. I may have seen The Elephant Man, but I didn't know it was the same guy. I hadn't seen Eraserhead. So I went to see it, and I, I must admit it was kind of um, an amazing film. It was um, I'd never seen anything like it. Uh, so I wanted to see it again, older and, and maybe a bit wiser. Um, and I was also – I wanted to see whether philosophy could illuminate the film. I thought it could, but I – I didn't know that for sure. So I, it was a kind of calculated risk. And yes, I, I think it can in, in some ways. Um, but, but, but above all, I, I wanted to see the film again on the big screen and to just rethink it.
0: Yeah, that, that rings true to me. Uh, I think that's been one of my favourite things about this series, is just revisiting a film with a hunch or a feeling that there's something philosophically interesting there but not exactly knowing what it is before you watch the film.
1: Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. I mean, I mean, I, I, I doubt it's true in, in general that philosophy gives you a kind of set of keys that can unlock films. And that without those keys, you're just not going to see the point of the films. You're not going to get anything out of them. I, I just don't think that's how it works. And I think films are generally more, you know, impressionistically organized that so they're not arguments baked into a film structure where it's the critics task to try and unscramble the arguments Um, I I think that's, that's just the wrong way of looking at films and thinking about them in a philosophical way so I think if there is going to be an engagement between philosophy and films it has to proceed slightly differently
0: so That's a nice setup for the next question, which is, (laughs) what can we learn about Blue Velvet from the world of philosophy?
1: Well, I think first of all, there's there's nothing you'd be unable to think about if you didn't have a philosophical training. So, so, uh, as I've said, I don't think philosophy gives you a kind of code breaker, Uh, and I don't, I doubt that Lynch's um, imagination. Is fashioned in that very rigorous philosophical way, but but there are kind of obsessions and themes which which do seem um, amenable to some sort of philosophical commentary. Um, and I think there are different things going on in Blue Velvet. The first is the relationship um, that Dorothy, the nightclub singer, has with Frank, the uh, psychotic villain played by Dennis Hopper. The question is, what what are we to make of that relationship? Um uh, now Lynch, in a, a kind of transcripted interview in, in the book Lynch on Lynch, he does describe it as uh, a love story. He says that you know Frank is in love with Dorothy. He has difficulty in showing it. Um she's his willing captive. Um and this is something that Dennis Hopper also thought. So the film does raise the question, what is their relationship? Obviously, Frank is very brutal. He's kidnapped her husband and child. Uh, He's a repellent character. But nonetheless, what is the status of their relationship? She seems uh, both to miss and to be concerned about her missing family, and yet she seems weirdly compliant uh, whether this is just a way of appeasing Frank to get the family back or whether it um, is getting at some sort of disposition she has for, for masochism, it, it, it's not clear. But I think philosophy can help because it can help to uh, structure the options for thinking about that. Um, and um, what I had in mind is Sartre's analysis of love and um, being a nothingness. So Sartre thinks that love is kind of doomed um, because there's a kind of instability in the relationship between the self and the other. We try to possess the other in love. But if we succeed in doing that, then we've somehow squeezed out their freedom and it's, it's, it's worth less to possess them. But on the other hand, if they retain their freedom... Then we haven't properly possessed them. And basically we can never get it right. And that so Sartre seems to think that the deep structure of of romantic relationships is say they're masochistic. And that I think can help us to think about uh the kind of weird relationships we see in blue velvet.
0: Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Uh I'm curious as to what you you make of that view of love. Uh so for me, uh, I think it depends what mood I'm in. Yeah. On my worst days, I think I'm kind of I can be quite sympathetic to that account of what love is. But on my better days, I worry that that's uh, it's too cynical an account of love. Yeah, it's kind of dark and strange, and it views love as too possessive.
1: So I, I kind of share that that, that view as, as well. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm more optimistic at least most of the time. Um but I think Lynch might see the world differently. He just might see relationships as being more predatory or or useless. Um I mean the other thing you notice about Blue Velvet is that there's this constant contrast between the uh this is something that like David Wallace David Foster Wallace describes as the respectable surface and the seamy underside. Um and, and Frank Booth represents the seeming underside, the world of evil, and everything else is just the respectable surface. But, but everything in Blue Velvet is weird. Like the, the normal, everyday world is weird and disconnected, and the relationships in both worlds seem uh, somehow inadequate.
0: Yeah, when I think about this film and think back to the discussions we had in the cinema when you showed it, I'm always struck by that line that Sandy says to Jeffrey when she asks him in the car she says i don't know whether you're a detective or a pervert <laughs> yeah and i always think that's a question that maybe lynch is asking of himself or that we could ask of lynch is david lynch a detective or is he a pervert so all this strange weird stuff that lynch is showing us is this stuff that's actually happening it's going on in the world. It's just hidden under the surface, and Lynch wants to show us that it's going on. So, you know, he's a detective, or is there less of this going on? But he's just fascinated by it and fixated by it, and kind of more of a pervert.
1: Yeah. No. Good. Um, well, there might be a bit of both, um, actually, and I, and I think the film, once you look at the film honestly, um, that question. About Jeffrey's being a detective or a pervert, I think that I think the answer has to be well, um, a, a, a bit of both. Um, it's true that he hides in Dorothy's closet to avoid being detected, um, but when she undresses, he's fine with that. You know, he 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 has voyeuristic tendencies, and I think I think one one of the points that Lynch might be making in Blue Velvet is that. Jeffrey is unnourished by the ordinary world. He's looking for an adventure. He's trying to realize himself. And in trying to realize himself, he finds himself in a world of danger and terror and evil. But that this world isn't totally alien to him. Um, he, he likes it. There's something about it he likes. He responds to, even though, of course, he's horrified. By aspects of it, and even though there are aspects of it he can barely understand, nonetheless, um, there's something about it that's calling to him. And I think that must be one of um, Lynch's—I don't know if it's a point he's making, but it seems to be a settled position um, established by the film that the ordinary world there's something insipid and unsatisfying about it, and The world of danger, um, the brutal, evil world, is a world which makes more of a call on us than many of us would admit.
0: So, maybe we've already covered this, but... Do you think there are some things the world of philosophy could perhaps learn from thinking about blue velvet
1: yeah, maybe um so I think there's something we should think about that that the ordinary world ordinary behavior ordinary life uh, is a bit less settled, a bit less ordinary than we might think, um and that a more brutal world um, is just round the corner now, now you know in in some philosopher's thinking, that that lesson never seems too far away. Uh, If you go back to Thomas Hobbes, uh, who was writing Leviathan at the time of the English Civil War, the world, the brutal world uh, without political authority is just around the corner. It's always within reach. Uh, You can know his tension, his fear of that's returning is palpable but other people, I mean, and all of us, surely, we, we just take it for granted. Uh, we just take ordinary the world and ordinary conditions and ordinary circumstances for granted. Uh, I mean, you know, even here in 2020, we're, we're now living in a world which seemed unimaginable. Um, we didn't think we'd all be in, in lockdown. Life can change very, very quickly. And things that we take for granted shouldn't be take, taken for granted. Now, you know, there, there are philosophical thinkers. Um, I mean, I'm thinking of Judith Shklar, uh, the liberalism of fear. There are political thinkers who who urge us not to be complacent about the preservation of ordinary conditions of civil life. I think maybe um, maybe Lynch's work and and particularly his work in Blue Velvet help, in some sense, to fortify that lesson, that reminder that we shouldn't take for granted um, that Ordinary conditions, ordinary peaceful conditions uh, are just guaranteed to continue where we're creatures who need to be held down in some fashion.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. I hadn't thought about the connection to Hobbes or the fact that there might be kind of political undertones to this film.
1: Yeah, in some sense. Yeah. I mean, it's. I mean, I yeah, believe all it's often talked about in connection to the American dream. It seems to be criticizing or exploding uh, the American dream. There's a very famous opening <clears throat> scene of waving firefighters and uh, manicured lawns and, and, and white picket fences. Um, then the camera just burrows underneath. It burrows underneath the manicured lawn and you see ferocious nature where just tiny creatures are feeding on themselves, um, it, it's just a, a frenzied nightmare. Um, so that's the surface versus the, the seamy underside. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, Lynch is, he has something to say about the American dream, and hes he's telling us, as many other people have told us, that it, it can't be taken for granted, and maybe we don't even want it deep down
0: so just in a preparation for this i read foster wallace's essay on lynch Mm. and blue velvet uh it's it's very Foster wallace for better and worse. <laughs> but one of the things that jumped out at me was that uh, twice he describes Kyle McLaughlin as a potato-faced nerd. It <laughs> just seems, tea, it seems really <laughs> off. So in the piece, I don't know if you remember, but he's really into Lynch in it. It's very much, Lynch is a genius, Lynch is much better than Tarantino, blah, blah, blah. Uh, And as he's lionising Lynch, he's going on about uh, the irony involved in what Lynch does and all the brilliant unconventional choices he makes. And w- one of the examples is oh, it's such a great unconventional choice to cast Carl McLaughlin as the lead for June because he's not a lead. He's a potato face nerd. But actually, it's much better to have a potato face nerd in the lead role for Blue Velvet. But like, I just don't think he's a potato face nerd at all.
1: Yeah, I. Um yes it, it, well if he's a potato face nerd what am i i mean uh
0: yeah i was thinking the same thing about myself
1: yeah goodness um <laughs> uh, it's a good phrase uh, and it looks as though once he thought of it he just couldn't put it down again um it does seem it seems quite aggressive doesn't it but um i mean i guess i guess jeffrey is less likable um by the end of the film
0: um I get that. Uh, I like the phrase and I've also been unable to put it down. And it's probably for the best that I can't <laughs> uh, hang out with people in person now because I would be calling all my friends potato face nerds for a day or two. Cheryl, <laughs> uh, do you have any related reading that you'd recommend for uh, our listeners if anyone's made it through this far?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, quite a lot's been written about Lynch. There is this collection, Lynch on Lynch, that's worth looking at. There's this Foster Wallace article, uh, David Lynch Keeps His Head, that we've referred to. Uh, that's in one of his essay collections, but you can get it online as well. In terms of the philosophy, um, well, I think Sartre's Being a Nothingness, the sections on on sexual love, Um yeah i mean they, 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 they seem like the things to to think about
0: yeah thanks so much for this gerald
1: thank you joe i've
0: really enjoyed this thank and hopefully much. we'll have you back on again soon Take okay. care. Film podcast was edited by Ollie Jenkins with music from Nathan Mosley. It's a Hyde Park Picture House production. If you have any thoughts on the topics discussed in this week's episode or ideas for films you'd like to see featured, we'd love to hear from you. You can use the hashtag philosophyfilm on Twitter or email us at info at hydeparkpicturehouse.co.uk. Coming up in episode three, we have a special festive edition where we'll be discussing It's a Wonderful Life with philosopher Shannon Day. For those of you who haven't seen the film, you can watch it on Film 4 on Friday the 18th of December at 3.15 and again on Channel 4 on Christmas Eve at 2.35. Until then, stay safe and thanks for listening.